Welcome to the Subconscious Mind Mastery Podcast. I am so privileged to have with us again here, Steve Forrest. This interview will be simulcast or also uploaded to the Fun Astrology Podcast. But we are going to talk about a new audiobook that is out with Steve called The Endless Sky. Many of you might be new to astrology. If you have not heard the name Steve Forrest, he is one of the giants in astrology today. Steve has been looking at charts for about 50 years now. He published his first book back in 1984 with Bantam Books called The Inner Sky. He has gone on to set up his own publishing business called Seven Paws Press. He has published over 20 titles in all, either under his own name or in conjunction with others. In 2019, Steve very graciously allowed me to be his voice on the Elements series, a four-book set, The Book of Fire, The Book of Earth, The Book of Air, and The Book of Water, which are core curriculum now. And what you're going to be hearing about in this interview, his school now, his legacy project, a school that will be teaching thousands and thousands of people astrology over the decades to come. And then, just recently here in early 2020, the book you're going to hear about today, The Endless Sky, was added to the collection of audiobooks. So Steve very graciously granted the time that we are about to hear together. The books are available on Audible and iTunes. You're going to hear a sample chapter at the very end. But we're going to drop in on some banter that Steve and I were doing before we really officially got rolling, where I told him about my new project, The Sprinter Van. And the setup to this is that when Steve was in his late 20s, he took a little hiatus from his job and bought a sailboat and sailed down the eastern seaboard. And that trip changed his life, as you will hear. Oh, yeah, that, that was a bit later. I was uh, 27 or so. I, I, I quit a terrible clerk job in a university and uh, just went sailing. And when you went sailing, did you name your sailboat? Uh, no, it was already named. It's, uh, I have a long nautical tradition in my family, and one of that is, of course, of course, entirely runs on superstitions, and one of them is never change the name of your boat. <laughs> okay, so what was the boat's name then? It was Puffin, like the bird. And didn't your experience in Puffin launch your full-time professional astrology when you got back? Yeah, yeah, it did. It was... Uh, and what happened was I, I had a practice, but I think I was scared to let go of having a regular job. So I was working a 40 hour week and then coming home and doing readings in the evening. I could have I could have uh, uh, cut the tide of the, the the world of business a lot sooner. But the, the, the four or five months of sailing kind of gave me the courage to go ahead and try it. I got a little uh, Jimmy Buffett in my veins, I suppose, and that's just what I needed to push me over the top. (laughs) Well, (laughs) so you know we've all had our own response to COVID-19, right? And one of the things that I wanted to do was be kind of footloose and fancy free. So I didn't buy Mm -hmm. a boat, but I did buy a Sprinter van. Oh, wonderful. Those are fun. So I am coming to you from Lord Jupiter. <laughs> That's what, And I bought it new, so I got to name it. So Lord Jupiter is the name of the Sprinter van. You say Lord Jupiter. Correct. 
Yes, yes, great, wonderful. And and where where are you located in your van now? You could be anywhere in the the Americas. I am in a parking lot in Greenville, South Carolina. Wow, on the road. Yeah, I know Greenville. Totally on the road. I'm heading back to Hickory where I have a storage unit and I'm going to uh-huh. repack some things and then I'm going to f- hopefully fly down to Florida where I'm meeting my other author Fred for a seminar over the weekend and then uh-huh. I'll be flying back up through Charlotte to Hickory. And then from there, I'm not sure. You remember the old Bob Seger song, Like a Rock? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a great line in there. I was standing on the Great Divide. I could go east. I could go west. It was all up to me to decide. (laughs) (laughs) And with a sprinter van, the world is your oyster. (laughs) Or your prairie oyster, as the case may be. Parking lots, back lots, RV parks, the whole thing. Yeah. So it's it's been uh, quite an adventure. Nomad land. Then Steve and I talked briefly about the dilemma of recording audio on the road. My partner, Michelle, has a place in New Orleans, and I've tried to do my work there, recording readings for people. And about every five minutes, something roars by, and and I have to first forgive my fellow humans and relax a little bit, then delete and then re-record that sentence and wait for the next two minutes. You know, it, it became impossible. I can feel, I can feel your frustration, my friend. Well, actually, I thought that would be a good place for us to begin. Can you tell us how the Endless Sky book came to be? Well, um, I was talking to you just a moment ago about New Orleans and and the difficulty of of me recording readings there. My my partner has a house there, and I sort of owe her uh, a few weeks in New Orleans every year. Or so so we drove there, and I I couldn't work. And I said, well, what will I do? Well, when in doubt, write a book. That's always been my my instinct. And and I, so I realized that, that I'd accumulated a tremendous uh, uh, kind of vein of gold, if I may be so bold, of uh, essays that I'd written on a bunch of transitory astro- astrological subjects or interesting ones or just weird ones, you know, for example. And and uh, uh, I, I just decided it was time to do a compendium of uh, of these essays, 20 years of, of work. It was time to make them available. Most had already been available on the internet or in magazines or, you know, sometimes even for free, mostly for free. But uh, getting them all under one cover and to one body of work felt like a good thing to do. And I'm really glad I did. Oh, that's awesome. And what a collection it is. And you mentioned at the very beginning of the book that, if this was something that sat on your coffee table and occasionally you picked it up, looked at the table of contents and thought, ah, there's an interesting chapter. That would be a success. Yeah. And I got to say, not only would it be a great coffee table book, but it's a great audio book format to do that as well. <laughs> it keeps moving because you never know what the what the next page is going to turn over, so to speak. Ah, that's for sure. It is. It jumps around. And what it what I was left with is just a super broad astrological deep dive of knowledge, but yet in yeah. in 20, 30 minute chunks, you know? So it's like kind of a Twitter from that aspect, shorter, more poignant, punchier, and yet covered so many top i think there's what 73 chapters or something like that it's there's yes, a bunch. There's 70, i think it was 73 in the end 555 pages 20 hours 
lot of work. A lot of vocal cords left on the ground there on that one. Well, I thought what we would do, if it's okay with you, let's just go through some of the sections. Now, I think there were nine or ten sections. We're not going to go through all of those, obviously. And we're not going to go through all the chapters. We could do that and then just wrap up. Ah, Steve, thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time. <laughs> nice lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I thought maybe if you're okay, let's let's be a couple of kids. Uh, you grew up in North Carolina. Let's go back to Mayberry and let's skip a rock across the lake. And where the rock hits the water, we'll maybe jump off for a couple of your comments on some things through. Does that sound okay? Yes, but one intervention. Uh, I did not grow up in North Carolina. Uh, there's wonderment about whether I've grown up yet, of course, but <laughs> beyond the obvious jokes, I grew up in New York, uh, just outside New York City. I, I stayed there until I was 17, a place called Mount Vernon, New York. And then my dad got transferred to New Jersey. Uh, and so I did one year in New Jersey, used to watch Bruce Springsteen, who was my age, play in the clubs, you know, before oh. he was anybody, so oh. to speak. So I had, had that Jersey soul. And then I went to North Carolina for college. And oh, I, I okay. stayed there for, for 42 years, I guess it was all together. I guess in my mind, I just had you and North Carolina together, but you had a whole life before that, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I did. It was uh, feels like a past life. Uh, I, North Carolina does feel like home in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's hit some high spots here as we go. Yeah, yeah, let's dive so, in. One of the things that's cool is you did organize things into sections. So it starts out with the planets at birth. So we talk about some things about the planets. I'm going to hop over that. And then the second chapter is astrological houses, including why you use Placidus. And anybody, mm -hmm. I think, who knows you and your work knows that you have just said one is going to, we're going to talk one language here and it's going to be, we're going to speak Placidus. And, um, and so there's a good article there as to why. And I love that you brought in flexibility and elasticity of the other house mm -hmm. systems. But you just said, you know, I've got to put my stake somewhere and this is where it's going to be. The other one I liked in that section was the great disappearing sixth house. And we'll let people figure that one out because I want to get yeah. over to the one that was the jaw dropper for me. And that was, you just mentioned it, under the chapter or the section three, the lunar nodes and reincarnation. And if you remember, when oh, I was yeah. narrating the book, I sent you an email and asked if I could post Chapter 17 as a podcast, and we did, which was a yeah, case you. study in reincarnation of this young boy who is alive today, James Leininger, had a book written about him called Soul Survivor, The Reincarnation of a World War II Fighter Pilot, where he recalled the intricate details down to valves and levers and knobs and co-pilots and scenes from World War II. What an amazing yes. story. That, Absolutely. Yeah. What? Tell me, elaborate on that. I just thought that was so fascinating. The way you wrote about it was just amazing. Yeah, thanks. It was a reincarnation is absolutely fundamental to my approach to astrology, that you, you have the chart, you have the uh, in the present life, you'll have the lessons you need to learn in the present life, because in prior lives, uh, something went wrong, something hurt you, something wasn't finished. There can be a lot of stories, but to make sense of astrology, 
as a purposeful system, I have to assume that you have your chart for a reason and the reason had to happen before you were born. And, you know, it leads pretty directly to reincarnation, or at least as one hypothesis. And we have this system uh, of analyzing the evidence of prior lives, you know, based on the present birth chart. It works like crazy in the counseling room. People are moved. It explains the the, the, like the craziness of their life, the loose ends of their life, the things that have chronically been problematic or difficult, and regarding which they're gradually making progress, and we can help them make progress. And, and so we have this uh, powerful uh, emotional proof that we're onto something with these methods for, for analyzing prior lifetimes. But of course, the, the, the looming Godzilla of a problem is, is that uh, it, it's like, how can we prove what we're doing is true? Because how can we get direct information about a past life to compare with our methods? And so along comes this book, Soul Survivor, and this kid who, who remembered that the Corsair fighter in World War II used to get flat tires all the time, you know, who, who realized the thing that his mother took for a bomb under the model of the airplane was, in fact, what was called a drop tank. It was an extra fuel tank. And the kid is like four years old saying, no, mom, that's, that's a drop tank. That's not a bomb. I mean, the kid was uncanny. And, and so we were actually able to have data about a prior life, even uh, a birth date for, for his previous incarnation. And what motivated me to write that chapter was that at last I, I could go step by step through the methodology we've developed in evolutionary astrology and compare it with reality, you know, to get a, like the, and, and we pull the rabbit out of the hat or, you know, the answer out of, out, out of the envelope. And, and it's like, we could, we could see the system was actually working. The symbols of, of the kid's chart were, were absolutely, utterly down to details consistent with his prior life memories. So two vectors and they both agreed and Bob's your uncle. I, I was really very happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that is one chapter, folks, that if you got the book or the audio book for it alone, that would be enough. You would be pleasantly satisfied with the exchange of value and money for that chapter alone. It was incredible. And, you know, right. even, Steve, right. the next one, when the saints come marching in, <laughs> you are so good. I don't know how you come up. Well, of course, you didn't come up with that title in New Orleans, but. Um, <laughs> it's not an original. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you're talking about these kids that were born under Neptune stationing to turn direct and also conjuncting the South node back in basically the end November timeframe of 2016. Yeah. And boy, aren't we experiencing this whole Neptune and Pisces thing big time even right now? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's got uh, three or four more years left in it. I think it's 2025 or so that Neptune will cross into Aries and it's uh, it went in, in 2011, moved slowly 165 years to get around the sun. Uh, it's uh, the key here is that Neptune is the ruler of Pisces. And when a planet is in the sign it rules, it's really strong. Rulership just means the sign and the planet agree with each other. You know, I think of like if you're sawing a piece of wood against the grain versus with the grain, 
when a planet's in its own sign, it's like you're sawing with the grain. So it comes at you at a million watts. And, and, and um, uh, this is the mystical symbolism, of course, Neptune and Pisces. I remember the, the very month that, that Neptune entered Pisces, the cover of Time magazine. What if there is no hell? Some you know, Christian theologian, a maverick theologian, had come up with the idea of God's love is so infinite. How, how could God keep anybody in hell for eternity for a, a few little mistakes, you know, so to speak? And, and of course, he's a, a terrible maverick, you know, from the conventional Christian point of view. But the point is the synchronicity, cover of Time magazine, suddenly something about compassion, something mystical, something spiritual— as the, the culture shifted in that direction. Now, we always have hell on earth. You know, humans have been very good at keeping that going. We have fine examples of it right now with the, the horrors in the Ukraine. Um, it's so important as astrologers, I think, to emphasize that we are also currently experiencing a spiritual renaissance. I would encourage everyone listening to this podcast to just think of how many people they know who in the, the last decade have gone, for example, from uh, people taking yoga classes to being yoga teachers, people interested in astrology to becoming astrologers. You know, we have this tremendous flux of evolutionary acceleration happening on the planet now, and it's in sort of contradiction or juxtaposition, you know, with the usual hell that humans create. And then going right back to the original point you made when the saints come marching in, um, the south node of the moon, ind indicative of prior life karma, entered Pisces, Neptune rules it, as I mentioned, Neptune in Pisces lined up with that south node. And so we have the, the karma of these kids born. Uh, November of 16 was the focal point. I give it a few months on either side of that, actually. And, and uh, there is a bumper crop of, of saints, a bumper crop of mystics among those kids. And uh, it's so exciting to think about. Uh, I mean, when does, a, when does a mystic sort of come online, you know, as, a, as a, an influence on the world and the community? Usually it's not when they're, when they're four years old or six years old. We usually have to wait 20 years, 30 years, you know, for them to come to full power. But we've got the seed of a, of, of, of a spiritual renaissance driven by some incredible ancient, you know, reincarnations of, of lamas, of rabbis, of, of ministers, of conscious people who have come back to, to try to save our sorry butts, you know, from this world we've currently created. Uh, I, when I talk about this stuff, one of my favorite lines is, trust the children. Mm. Trust the children. Wow. And, you know, to that point, let's look ahead for a second. Taking that as the framework when those kids do come online, Neptune will be in Aries and Pluto will be in Aquarius. So what kind of yes. world will they step into? Yeah, kind of a wild one. Lots of change. You know, the, I, mean, I, I would start with Pluto. And Pluto always sets the tone for a generation. Uh, there's a particular tendency for Pluto to, to bring forth the shadow side of the, whatever sign it's in. Uh, ultimately, I mean, that's, that can be terrible, but it also affords us an opportunity to look at it. Nothing ever gets healed. Nothing ever gets dealt with until we're willing to acknowledge it 
and see it. And so the boil bursts. Uh, this this could be a, it's a webinar, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it a little shorter than that. Yeah, we're skipping but, uh, stones here. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Definitely. <laughs> Neptune crossed into Capricorn, where it still is today. It's getting near the end of it, soon to be in Aquarius, but entered a Capricorn 2008. Now, Capricorn is a sign with a great awareness of tradition, say traditional values. And there's a lot of beauty in Capricorn, like integrity, you know, keeping your word, uh, being faithful to your partner. You know, these are, these are high Capricorn energies. I don't want to make it sound negative, but we think of traditional values, and then we start thinking of the dark side of traditional values. So this will sound a bit ironic, but let me name some traditional values here for you. Values that have had a long tradition. In other words, here's one, racism. Here's another, sexism. Here's another one, homophobia. These are, in fact, traditional values. They're terrible values, of course, and they hurt people, but they do have a long history. And simple question, since 2008, have we been seeing a resurgence of all that? Have we been seeing all of that just as obvious as it can be? Yes, it's, it's in our face as a, as a community. And, of course, nightmare built into that, but also healing as we think about the the advances in terms of racism, in terms of sexism, in terms of homophobia, more and more people are becoming conscious and liberating themselves from these things. And, and the ones who are identified with those horrible values are, of course, cornered and angry and shooting guns at anything that moves, you know. So we, we have that mess. Now, Aquarius, where Pluto will be next, you know, crosses in, in and out, 23, 24 and then it's in there solidly for a, a generation or so. As, as that happens, Aquarius is a much more revolutionary kind of sign. It is more correlated with uh, uh, progressive thinking. Uh, if it weren't for Aquarius, we would still be hauling rocks for the pharaoh, you know, is one of my favorite lines. It's kind of a trigger of social change. And all that sounds really good, and I think a lot of the good stuff of that will, will become obvious, but is there a shadow side to the progressive movement? Is there a shadow side to, to uh, oh, I, I, big government, I guess would be one way of saying it? Uh, uh, some of the extreme uh, cancel culture, political correctness kind of things, you know, uh, they, they're complicated and, and they can go too far. And I suspect we'll be seeing more of that. There's also dark side of Aquarius is uh, in, in the language of psychiatry would be a dissociative disorder, you know, just not giving a damn, you know, a kind of emotional distancing. And uh, I suspect we'll see a lot more of that, too. Uh, the kids, these conscious kids, you know, will be working as a counterbalance for these negative energies, will be, will be carrying a, a kind of charismatic authority around the positive values. People will tend to identify with them and be, be led in higher directions. So we'll, we'll see the ongoing mess. You know, I, I always just get a laugh out of people who say uh, Elvis is going to come with Sasquatch and the UFO and a epic of peace, love, and understanding is about to break forth on the earth. You know, it's, it hasn't happened, and I don't think it's going to happen. You've got me going here. Let me give you one, one more chapter. 
I don't mean to sound cynical in what I just said, but I think of the earth as uh, as a high school. You know, and in a high school, there's certain lessons you learn. And when you've learned them, you graduate. Maybe you go to college, you know. And so to expect earth and humanity to enter some golden age of peace, love, and understanding, I mean, it's a noble sentiment, of course, but, but I, I would also see a parallel with, with wishing that your high school could evolve into a college. You know, there's a certain folly in that. A high school needs to be a high school. Earth serves its purpose. People come here and they deal with, with ego and love versus separation. And, you know, the, that, these are the lessons that we, we take human form in order to learn. When we've learned them, I think then we move to the golden city. Quite a stage that those kids are going to be stepping into. And you painted that beautifully because you can feel the tension of the two sides, the shadow and the positive side of two very significant placements that are not complementary. And also Mm -hmm. then these kids that are going to drop in to tell the adults what to do, which is not Mm -hmm. an Aquarian Mm -hmm. thing, but... But that, yeah, nobody wants to know what to do. <laughs> right. That'll be a that will be an interesting thing. All right. That almost just slides us right into the next little section that I thought we'd talk about. Section four. And one of the chapters in section four was the perils of prediction. And boy, mm. so Steve and I are talking now, what is it? Uh 72 hours, I guess, into the time period when Russian planes and tanks invaded Ukraine. And the world, I think, is still in shock. We are still in shock. I know we're all still processing. We're at that stage here right now as we're talking. And yet, Mm -hmm. isn't it tempting as astrologers to say, oh, I saw Mars applying to Pluto, and I saw this and I saw that, and start to try to make predictions why is yeah, it, do yeah. you think, that we astrologers and people who love astrology, and it's almost like, especially with the media, they think that astrologers are supposed to predict and be right. Yeah. And when we're not, mm-hmm. they make fun of us on the front page of the New York Times. Yes, so, exactly. And we fall for the trap over and over and over again. I've, uh, loudly and clearly, uh, we cannot see the future. You know, I, I, I'd say that quite confidently, that we can, we astrologers can predict questions, but not the answers to those questions. And that's not a weaselly way of saying it. It's, it's a just simply more accurate way. And everything that's a question, by the very definition of the word, has more than one answer, you know, or it's not a question. And everything that we see in astrology, we can potentially get it right. Or if we don't get it right, we surely will get it wrong, because the one thing that astrology cannot do, that astrological forces cannot do, is go away. Uh, Energy can be neither created nor destroyed, only changed in form. That basic principle of science, it's totally astrological too. Pluto conjunct Mars, that is the most obvious correlate of of the current Ukraine situation, Uh, that's energy. And that was going to manifest somehow but there were higher possibilities. We didn't see them, at least not so far. Yeah, sadly. Yeah. You know, the next section was personal reflections. And that was where I kind of sensed that you were kicking the dirt a little bit with your 
foot and saying, ah, should I put this in here? Should I not put this in here? And I thought it was, it was one of my favorite sections of the book. So I'm so glad that you did. And one of the things that you talked about was your path of creating the apprenticeship programs, which I thought was really cool of how you did that. But then also the segue of bringing it up to today, February, late February 2022, which is now the Forest Center of Evolutionary Astrology. Can you bring us up to date on where you are? And I'd love for you to tell people about your school and what opportunities are available. Yeah. Oh, great. I'd love to. Uh, Forest Astrology, two hours in forest, forestastrology.center. And you can learn all about it there. That's our website. Um, So kind of starting at the beginning, uh, my first apprenticeship program uh, arose out of a a frustration I was feeling with the uh, the weekend workshop format, or, or even worse, the hour and fifteen minute uh, lecture at a at a conference. Um, those serve purposes, but uh, I wanted to be able to go deeper. You know, work with some students and and kind of carry them from the beginning to a, a deeper understanding. So I I started the apprenticeship program. Kansas City, uh, there were like seven people in a living room, you know, and it just grew and grew and grew until eventually it was on, I guess, four continents and a couple of thousand graduates. And, you know, it was, it became a big thing, but it was getting, uh, I was getting older, like we all are, and uh, getting tired. The the, uh, international travel is uh, exciting and wonderful, but absolutely exhausting. And uh, it was really starting to wear me down. And uh, I, I gave notice. This was before COVID. Uh, the program took three years to complete, and or, or three three four day meetings. I guess it was over two years. And and uh, the the idea was I gave notice, but for you know far enough into the future that people could who who had just started could complete the work. And then. Cosmically, uh, COVID struck. You know, it was like I had kind of drawn down these programs, and 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 the COVID hit, and it was really kind of harmonious because if I was in the middle and full cry with these programs, and COVID had come along, it would have been very awkward, you know, leaving people hanging. So that was all just that's what happens when you you actually pay attention to your chart and you let astrology guide you. Uh, my moon had entered the 12th house. It was telling me time to let some things go. Thank God I heeded that. You know, you, you, just how we stay in harmony with the universe. You can do it without astrology, but astrology sure helps. If you're slightly crazy, as we all are, or we wouldn't be here, I recommend letting astrology guide the timing of your choices, the nature of your choices. You'll just have a happier life. And the story I just told is an illustration of that. And right around that same time, I uh, joined up with a couple of friends, uh, a tech guy who was a philanthropist and a woman who was a professor of art in a, a local college and, and myself. And we started uh, creating this Forest Center for Evolutionary Astrology as an online uh, school, basically. It's uh, not accredited, but it's essentially a college. It's about a four-year program 
that will take people from really from zero if they know they don't even know how many signs are in the zodiac. You know, they're they're welcome. And right from that point to astrological mastery, it's it's an intensive program. People have to uh, pass tests and and so on. Much more rigorous than my apprenticeship program was, which was uh, more casual. So I'm real excited about it, and we're in our second year. Fully launched, up and running. Tell people again, just so they can lock in, how they find it. Yeah, uh, forestastrology.center. Just make sure you put two R's in forest, and it's one word, forestastrology.center. Not, not .com, but .center, and that'll take you right there. Awesome. And about how many people do you have involved in it now? Uh, 150, oh, give or take. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And that number mm-hmm. will just continue to grow and grow. So, you know, the, and the next section that we're going to talk about or, or just skip a stone over here is mundane astrology, of course, bringing us up to some of the things that are happening today just in the big planets. You think there's going to be more and more and more interest in astrology? Oh, yeah. It's uh, absolutely all, all through the, the community of, of teachers and writers. It's uh, a universal observation that that astrology has been exploding. It's been getting a lot more popular. Uh, it, it's uh, most of us who are established are are really busy. I I got, I got booked for my personal work uh, to the point that it was like about ten years ahead, and I realized how old I was, and it was time to shut down the lists. I'm hoping I can keep the promises I've made. Uh, so it's. Uh, there's gold in them are hills, you know, for anybody who's really interested in astrology. It's it's uh, something you can take seriously as a as a profession. It's uh, meaningful, of course, and, you know, gives a sense of purpose to your life. And those are intangibles. Those are absolutely precious things. Uh, I would also say in purely practical terms, if you have a, a full-time astrological practice, your your income will be commensurate with that of a psychotherapist. For example, you know it's it's a it's a comfortable middle class living. Uh, people uh, often find find it a bit implausible that astrology could be anything more than a hobby. But in fact, the the, the world is really opening up for astrology as a profession. And that's why your program is just so critical because obviously you have created the brand and the work that is desirable. And now you've put the structure together to walk people through it in a reasonable amount of time. But where they come out, I was thinking about this the other day. I work on a radio show where we talk with doctors a lot. And, yeah. to you know, the, the understanding, the knowledge, the depth of just the resources that a doctor has in their minds is what you're going to yeah. instill in these people that complete your program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, none of them will be experts because they've done a 45 minute YouTube viewing or something. You know, this, this is this is serious. Well, and it takes time to just absorb and watch and see these things happen. And over four years, by the time you get through, then you've had you've been around a little bit. You've seen a few things and it's uh, it's a good time frame as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. I think this would be incomplete for people if uh, chomping at the bit here. Talk about where we are. So Neptune obviously is in Pisces. Jupiter is headed toward a an April 2022 conjunction with Neptune. We've got Saturn in Aquarius. 
And then we have obviously the Uranus impact on this. And the other thing, if you don't mind touching on the square between Pluto and Eris, and we talk oh, about yeah, you know just a locked in energy. Tell us kind of where we are now. And then, of course, in light of the tragic events that started to unfold this week. Yeah, yeah. The the piece of the puzzle that everybody who's aware of astrology would notice is uh, Pluto and Mars being very close together, forming a conjunction. Venus is in there, too. but, But poor Venus, the goddess of peace, is getting battered by the god of war, Mars, And Pluto, lord of the underworld, I often like to translate it the god of hell. So poor Venus, you know, is in kind of bad company right now. And so we have a very obvious mirror in the sky, you know, for the present uh, unpleasantness, so to speak. I was so happy to hear you mention Eris. Uh, This uh, new planet is the size of Pluto. So if Pluto is a planet... And Lord knows anybody who's ever experienced a Pluto transit is not going to argue with that. You know, Pluto impacts us powerfully. And, and, and there's Eris, uh, approximately the same mass, uh, further out, slower orbit, but uh, it's, it's big. And Eris is in a, a square, a hard aspect, a disharmonious aspect. I don't want to call it bad but a tense aspect with with Pluto, and that's ongoing. And then it's loaded now because the fast-moving Venus and Mars have joined up with Pluto. So we have this massive traffic jam. And one one line about uh, Eris, the the Greek uh, goddess Eris, who who was not somebody you'd want to have dinner with, you know, that uh, a line from Hesiod, and this just gives me goosebumps to say, but about Eris, that she delights in the groans of men dying in battle and goes among them increasing their pain. Uh, now, Eris can have a positive side, uh, despite those words. Everything in astrology can. But we're seeing you know, this uh, tension, a, a, a line I use with Eris. I was just quoting Hesiod, the Greek poet, but a line I use is that uh, she likes to win but not as much as she likes to see you lose. You know, there, there is that dark side of competitiveness connected with it. The high heiress is the high side of competition. The, 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 the bright side, uh, you know, we, uh, if, uh, again, Hesiod, if potter competes with potter and poet competes with poet, you know, well, okay, we get better pots and better poets, you know? And, and so I, I think of, uh, like, why is, uh, you know, Tesla, the automobile, it's a classic illustration, you know, Eris discovered me early in this century, and and here we see Tesla, and and the competition for uh, more environment, environmentally friendly automobiles, as, you know, the Prius came in, and, and Tesla, and so on, and this competition, it's for money, you know, these are businesses, but the competition can make the world cleaner, make the world safer, you know, as we move away from from a fossil fuel-based society. I mean, it's obviously a big subject, but that's an illustration of the high side of Eris. But right now we're seeing nothing but the the hellish side of it, at least in the Ukraine. I always like to think, though, as I was saying with Neptune earlier, that once you part the veil of the horrors, 
there is a lot of personal evolution going on that's a lot more encouraging. You know, people finding their power, people kind of growing up spiritually, taking responsibility for how they're shaping society, and and uh, sometimes being in competition with people who represent a, a darker view of things. And you know, may the may the, may wisdom win, may wisdom prosper. Absolutely, and may there be peace. Yes, may there be peace on earth. Are there any other significant placements that we should also consider right now? So we talked about Neptune, Saturn, Pluto, Uranus, and Taurus, uh, and then Eris. Anything else that we should have our eye on? Well, you've you've named all the planets, basically, uh, the slow-moving ones that build the themes. I, I, I'd like to say a word or two about uh, Uranus and Taurus. Uranus, 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 you know, nobody knows how to say it, which is uh, is sort of synchronistic in that uh, this is a planet that deals with individuation, with the process of thinking for yourself. And among astrologers, you can't even mention this planet without somebody thinking you're wrong about how you said it. It's, it's sort of an interesting synchronistic footnote. But specifically, um, so Uranus is in Taurus now. Uh, the second sign of the zodiac, with the second house, which has some correlation with Taurus. It's often called the house of money. And Taurus is a lot more complicated than money, but there are financial dimensions to it. And so here we have a revolutionary planet right in the middle of the sign that has to do with money. Uh, The last time, it's 84-year orbit. Last time it happened, it's uh, the depression and the recovery from the depression and and the beginning of social security and and you know all this complete uh, changing of the whole banking system and economic system of America. Um, there was an apparition before this. Uh, I think we're talking about the year 1605, give or take a little bit. This is a bit off the top of my head, but the Dutch East India Company was formed. This doesn't sound too exciting, but but here's what happened. For the first time, a company formed where people, citizens, could buy shares in the company and participate in the profits of the company. The the, the beginning of the idea of, of holding stock of, of corporations that were publicly traded, which completely revolutionized the economy, Uranus and Taurus. The, and then again, the 30s, Uranus and Taurus, and here we are again. I hear the term late stage capitalism sometimes. You know, it's like our economic systems seem to be falling apart. They seem to be failing. The gap between the haves and the have nots is becoming unsustainable. And so, are we in the process of witnessing uh, some renaissance or at least some revolution in the way humanity as a, a culture handles money? I, I think probably the answer is yes. Yeah. Bitcoin and you know is one obvious illustration. Well, and you could go down a lot of rabbit holes on that as far as an unsustainable national debt, the US dollar losing yeah. its significance around the world as the especially petro currency, and now you have a war where Russia has been allying itself with other countries to do business outside of the dollar. And then if that happens, you've got hyperinflation. So, I mean, there are so many different areas that we could go down on that exactly. chapter yet to be written, and we will not fall into the trap of trying to make predictions. 
Yeah, good for you. That we're writing the chapter, you know. But uh, what the universe has told us is, it's time for you folks to write this chapter. You know, in fact, we insist, says the universe. You know, the the synchronicities, the circumstances press the question upon us about how, as a as a species, we want to deal with with money. Well, it's pressing at us exactly. And what you're saying there is. The universe gives we humans the choice, and there the whole thing is built on polarity or duality, if you want, right? Yeah. So how can you yeah. predict when you're basically in the middle of a coin toss? I mean, human consciousness can change and change quickly. Yes, exactly. You speak of polarity and and the coin toss, and a fundamental expression of polarity, I think, Thomas, is the the fate and free will. Mm. You know, I, I, I tend to be a big advocate of free will. That's the active ingredient in our lives, and, and, and it needs to be underscored. But it is our fate to face certain questions and certain possibilities, certain circumstances. That's not in the category of free will. That's what the universe gives us. It's like, here's the question. It's your fate to have this question in your face right now. How are you going to answer it? That's where free will comes in. You can't really have one without the other. You know, and that plays so well with your theme that you carry through your work of synchronicities. Would you just take a second to talk about synchronicities and how that plays into our life and how it relates to our astrological chart and the progressions and transits as well as it unfolds? Yeah, and this I should do in a second. <laughs> <laughs> Two minutes. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. That, that Two minute drill at the end of the game, right? <laughs> Synchronicity. Uh, Carl Jung and Wolfgang Pauli, physicist. Uh, Uh, came up with the term, Jung realized there's too many coincidences for coincidence to be a reasonable explanation. And then he realized there's patterns in these coincidences. And the patterns, it's like uh, things are meaningful, meaningful patterns. It's like the same, somebody recommends a book to you. Two days later, somebody else recommends the same book. You know, that's a classic illustration. And your line is, I guess I should read the book. You know, as as we're letting the universe guide us through these coincidences. Now, astrology, I think, works on synchronicity. I, I think there is probably not fundamentally a, a like a physical causal thing where the gravity of the planets is 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 making something happen. I I think it's purely a synchronistic phenomenon, and uh, the positions of the planets in the sky are linked meaningfully to conditions on the earth. Sounds like a crazy idea until you go back to there's too many coincidences. So in the last chapter of uh, The Endless Sky, I go a little deeper into this, and I used an image, which I I really like. So here it is. Uh, Two people, strangers, get on a flight to Chicago. And they're sitting next to each other on the airplane. They don't talk. They ignore each other as people do on airplane flights. And uh, five days later, they're flying back home again. And they happen to be sitting next to each other again. I mean, it's occasionally it happens. And, and they recognize each other. And there's a very high probability they're going to start talking. There's a very high probability one will say, oh, my God, it's you again. I, I guess we're supposed to talk. See, that's an instinctual thing to say, 
but it is connected to the fact that all humans understand synchronicity, even if they've never heard the word before. I guess we're supposed to talk. God has arranged for us to be again in these adjacent seats. And and so I, I don't want the story to get silly, but they fall in love, they get married, you know, it's, it's possible. And well, here, here's where the magic enters. Seven years later, they're having some trouble in their marriage. Marriage is not always an easy road, you know? And, uh, you know, they love each other, but there's some irreconcilable difference, which maybe they can reconcile somehow. It's the nature of intimacy. And the fact that God wanted them to be together, or the universe wanted them to be together, as evidenced by the synchronicity of their meeting, gives them faith. It gives them strength. They're not living in a random universe where it doesn't matter if they work out this problem. They've gotten this message from above, so to speak, or from the higher level, that their relationship is important. And so maybe it makes the difference between divorce and reconciliation and resolution. Synchronicity serves a healing purpose for us. It's not just something we observe and think is cool, although it qualifies there too, but it's something, it's, a, it's soul food. It's, it's essential to our, our having faith that the universe is not a random collision of atoms and molecules, like basically it was described to us in high school science class. The reality is vastly more meaningful, more organized, and more complex than that. It is truly, truly fascinating. Yeah. A couple of fun chapters, and then we'll play a section that I thought, uh, picked a, a chapter that I wanted to run by you to see what you think, for, play a section for people. But you did a chapter on what time was Benny born? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of my favorites, of course. My kitten. <laughs> and that chapter was about rectifying a, a time or at least dialing into a time of birth yeah. when a lot of people don't know the exact time because even they might be close to it was true in my own life. My mother thought it was about 830 p.m. Well, turns out rectifying the chart it was an eight minute difference, which is significant. So you did a great yeah. job of explaining how to dial that in, or at least what you went through when you had nothing to work with. Really? Yeah, just a, a day, give or take a day. It's, it's a pretty simple idea in principle. The, prod, the, it's, 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 uh, the craft of rectification is, is fairly complex, but I, I can explain it simply. When something important happens in a person's life, there are always astrological correlates for it. There's always, you know, like a, a planet is conjunct that person's sun or conjunct their ascendant or something like that. So anything happens in life, it's reflected in astrology. So we don't know a time of birth. And what we do is we get a list of events in the person's life. You know, here, here I got married, here I, I, I moved to Los Angeles, or, you know, just the big events that can be dated. And then we adjust the chart until it would have predicted the timing of those events. In other words, instead of predicting events with astrology, we predict the chart from the events. It's the same thing, only backwards. So the, the idea is as simple as that. It works like crazy. Yeah, that was a fun chapter. I, I if, if you get the book, be sure to listen or read What Time Was Benny Born? 
and then one that you'll appreciate. I'm in a van and I'm traveling around the place. So I put down my local space lines and you wrote a chapter about relocational astrology where you explain the whole thing perfectly. But I just wanted to tell you that uh, I was, okay, so I've got a stellium of three planets, all right? And I was on the local space line of those three planets. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in South Carolina right on the very line of those three planets. And I mean, something happened and it's a little personal. I'm not going to go into the details of it. But just to say that it was a perfect representation of exactly my three planets and the house that they are in unfolding, sitting there on that line, which I've never done in my life before. I've never just gone on that line and parked. Yeah. Like I was, yeah. it was incredible. Yes. It's a, it, it works. It's powerful stuff. I would always uh, like to emphasize freedom with all these things. Like people who do astro mapping and tell people where to live. The ones who don't do a very good job, in my opinion, are the ones who say, oh, don't go to a Saturn line. Always go to a Jupiter line, you know, Saturn, bad luck, Jupiter, good luck. You can go to a Jupiter line and use it to gain 40 pounds. You know, there's that possibility. You can you can also maybe win a contest, you know, but Jupiter just says yes. And yes is a good word, but a dangerous one sometimes. Uh, if somebody wanted to uh, get their PhD in nuclear physics, you know, which seems like kind of a tough thing to do. It takes a lot of concentration and discipline. If they wanted to move to a, a a Saturn line for the university, I'd say go for it. You know that makes sense. You know, harness the Saturn energy because it's about self-discipline. It's about one-pointed focus. So we're we're not the victims of of these lines. You know, we can we can work with them and we can use them intentionally. We can set intentions and and uh, move to places that support the intentions. Well, Steve, thank you so much for doing this. I. Just can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you again for the book, for letting me participate and to vocalize that on your behalf. I really appreciate it. I would like to leave people with a chapter, and I was thinking about chapter seven is called Venus and the Fine Art of Rejecting People. (laughs) What would you think about leaving them with some Venus energy? Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I, I look forward to hearing it. Again, you can find all the audiobooks on audible.com and iTunes. Chapter 7, Venus and the Fine Art of Rejecting People Familiarity can kill creativity. With repetition, astrologers run the risk of becoming mechanical in their responses. That's one advantage young astrologers have over old ones. They bring fresh ears to the planetary music. Not knowing exactly where the edges of the box are, They tend to think outside of them. Whatever our age, a wise prayer is that we might all retain some of that youthful rebel mind, the one that questions everything, including ourselves. In this piece, I try to shock us out of that reflexive feeling that we know what Venus means. If there's one principle upon which you can always count— It is that with astrology, whatever we know, it is always more than that. Venus 
and the Fine Art of Rejecting People. Newsletter, June 2021. Once in teaching a class about the planet Venus, I startled my students, and myself too, a little bit. I heard myself say that the main function of Venus lies in rejecting people. That, of course, is far from how we normally think of Venus. We imagine the goddess of love, greeting us doe-eyed and misty with open arms, receiving us into her heart without even a smidgen of criticism, hesitation, or preconditions. People sometimes spend their lives looking for that kind of perfect love. They are humanity's tragic romantics. Most of them die lonely. Pete Townsend of The Who released a song 40 years ago that seemed to say it all. The sea refuses no river. That line to me represents one of the high points of rock and roll poetry. But it actually has very little to do with Venus. In actuality, his words are purely Neptunian, and not just because of the maritime reference. It is Neptune, not Venus, that loves people unconditionally. As most of us quickly learn, there is a huge difference between the way we imagine that God loves us and the ways our parents or our partners love us. With parents and partners, while there may be sincere hugs and kisses, the package also includes a few eye rolls and some disapproving looks, along with quote-unquote helpful lists of the myriad of ways in which we might improve ourselves. Venus does not love everybody. That's Neptune's job. Venus picks and chooses, and that means some element of rejection must always be part of the process. Venusian love is personal. It's me and you stuff, not me and the human race. Sexually, Venus tends to be binary, or at least it aspires to that condition. For example, how often in a lifetime are you going to say the words, Will you marry me? Gone are the days when the reflexive answer was only once. But most of us who do choose to marry try to at least keep the number down to the fingers on one hand. This observation leads us directly to Forrest's theorem number 376, that most of us kiss a lot more people than we marry. And what's a kiss but a preliminary investigation of the possibility of deeper intimacy? Even among the most sincere people in the world, those investigations are far more likely to reveal reasons not to be together than reasons to tie a lifelong knot. See, that's rejection. Saying no to people with wisdom and discernment is a fundamental Venusian art. Among those of us who are inclined to form couples, here is the basic script underlying the actual experience of 99% of us. Not you, not you, not you, not you. Give me a kiss. No, not you either. Not you, not you. Hmm, 
You? Kiss me. Could it really be you? Kiss me again. You! It's you! I've found you. All this might sound flippant, but run it through your reality checker. I'd be surprised if it failed the test. Underlying everything we are considering here is a pivotal point about the planet Venus. What Venus does is to discern deep, specific complementarity between ourselves and another person. Saying that Venus is about rejecting people is accurate enough, although, in all honesty, that catchy phrase fails to capture the warm spirit of the planet. Maybe we can love everybody or at least aspire to do that. But can everybody be your best friend? Can everybody be your partner? Offering anyone that kind of deeply personal intimacy is a rich gift, and one that we cannot give to too many people. Life is simply too short. Plus, we are all too individuated to find that kind of soul harmony on every street corner. Love is a slippery word, one with many different legitimate meanings. That's probably one reason that it's such a popular term with scoundrels. As we have seen, the love you might feel for humanity, the milk of human kindness, is in the boundaryless domain of Neptune. The special, very human love you feel for a partner or a dear friend is Venusian love. For a person to qualify for receiving it, he or she has to pass a lot of tests and keep on passing them. Underlying all of this are six basic truths about the Venusian dimensions of the evolution of the human soul. Venus lessons cannot be learned all alone. They are about love and trust, and nobody learns much about those things all by themselves. Only certain specific people can help you learn the intimate lessons you are here to learn. Tapping random strangers on the back in the local cafe is not a reliable strategy. If you truly tune into your heart, you actually have some pretty good instincts about who can help you and who cannot. Those instincts are encoded astrologically in your natal Venus, which is wired to be attracted to the kinds of people who can actually help you grow and to reject the ones who cannot. Failing to reject those who cannot be of positive help to you is the source of oceans of human suffering. Recognizing those who can help you and sharing life with them is perhaps the greatest treasure this world can offer. This month, Venus will spend time in three different signs. June begins with Venus nearing the end of Gemini. It enters Cancer on the 2nd and then Leo on the 26th. Over those four weeks, kids will be born with very different intimate pathways open to them. Each of these children will naturally be in a unique astrological situation. The question is never as simple as what sign Venus occupies. 
houses, aspects, nodal karma, many other astrological dimensions are relevant. But signs are important. Let's bring all we've been exploring here down to Earth with a quick look at Venus in Gemini, Venus in Cancer, and Venus in Leo. To do that, I'm going to borrow three lightly edited sections from the second volume in my Elements series, The Book of Earth. In hearing these words, you'll catch a message about what people with Venus in each of these signs is learning, who is able to help them with that learning, and what it looks like if they don't master the twin arts of honest self-knowledge and the discerning rejection of those who are not good for them. Venus and Gemini The Intimate Evolutionary Agenda Excellent communication is critical to my experience of intimacy. The clear translation of soul states into vocabulary and syntax is always challenging. I resolve to master that skill, both in terms of my own emotional self-expression and in terms of my ability to listen deeply to another person without being blinded by my own preconceptions. I do not do well in a relationship when I am bored. I resolve to do my part to keep all my relationships interesting, growing, and changing. Essential qualities in a natural partner? Open-mindedness, curiosity, an eagerness for new experiences and for opportunities to learn. Listening skills, articulateness, or at least willing verbal self-expression, a natural predilection for conversation, a willingness to discuss anything. Strategy. I commit to two resolutions. I listen to any partner carefully and to respond clearly and forthrightly from my own heart. I do my part in keeping a relationship interesting. I suggest travel. I read books and talk about what I've learned in them. I dynamite deadening intimate routines for the sheer joy of seeing something different. I ask questions and listen to the answers. Tools I like to talk and I like to listen, at least in intimate situations with people I love. I am naturally interested in many things. I am genuinely curious about the perspectives of others, especially those with whom I am sharing my life. Dealing with the Shadow There are many interesting and attractive people in the world, but once I am committed to a particular relationship, I am careful not to be distracted by other people. I'll use language as a way of building bridges to people with whom I care. I will zealously monitor myself regarding my tendency to hide my heart behind words and elaborate rationalizations. Venus in Cancer Intimate Evolutionary Agenda the formation of strong, long-lasting, committed bonds with other human beings. Stability and longevity in relationships are not the only point. The deeper point is that I am to create an intimate environment for myself, 
in which the most vulnerable parts of my being feel safe enough to be revealed. At the heart level, I am seeking home, along with a feeling of family, in some sense of the word. Essential Qualities in a Natural Partner A willingness to be radically committed to me. Faithfulness, reliability, and loyalty. One who is not unduly afraid of a powerful word such as forever. An urge to nurture, whether that nurturing is of children, pets, a garden, or the relationship itself. Strategy. I must maintain a creative tension between, on one hand, my natural caution about getting hurt, and on the other hand, volunteering to take the risk of truly opening my heart. I will not be so cautious as to be unreachable. Tools. A deep and fundamental capacity to love another human being in a spirit of familial devotion and lifelong commitment. A nearly infinite ability simply to care for another person. A natural internal marriage of my sexuality with emotions of simple affection. Dealing with the Shadow I resolve to be aware of my potential for excessive caution and self-protection. I won't hide my true feelings or needs behind the parental mask of caregiving. Venus in Leo Intimate Evolutionary Agenda I resolve not to settle for anything less in my intimate life than the feeling of being cherished by someone whom I myself treasure. No one has to be perfect. That's not the point. The agenda here is to be perfectly loving, to celebrate each other, stand up for each other, and to consistently prioritize the well-being of the relationship over all other concerns. I need to feel free enough to be vulnerable. Essential qualities in a natural partner. Expressiveness. An affectionate, demonstrative nature. Supportiveness. The ability to say, I love you. Attentiveness and natural fluency in offering compliments. Self-respect and respect for me as demonstrated by a willingness to look and behave his or her best. Strategy First and foremost, I resolve never to settle for a partner whom I do not genuinely cherish. I'd rather be alone than to abase myself that way. Once having found such a person, I actively commit to an active, lifelong path dedicated to preserving and nurturing the lasting romance of our bond. Tools I have a certain flair for style and colorful self-expression, an ability to say what I feel in an impactful way so that it is heard deeply, a degree of healthy pride, self-respect, and dignity, all of which support me in not settling for too little in any of my relationships. Dealing with the Shadow I remind myself that no one's life needs to revolve around mine. In a healthy relationship, we are like a double star orbiting a common center of gravity, 
which we have created together. It is not all about me. I express my own needs forthrightly, but I also make space to hear the needs and celebrate the victories of my friends and my partners. May all the babies born this month find the kind of love that works for them, and may the rest of us find it, preserve it, and treasure it too. May all of us learn to know ourselves and love ourselves enough to walk away from anything less. The stories and opinions expressed on this podcast are independently those of the host and guests and are not intended to be taken as medical advice or to replace medical care from a licensed professional when appropriate. The stories and opinions expressed on this podcast are independently those of the host and guests and are not intended to be taken as medical advice or to replace medical care from a licensed professional when appropriate.